0: Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome again to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Centre, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by two of our regular contributors, Drs. Archisman Chowdhury and Philip Gooding, both of whom are postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC.
2: Hi, Renee, Thank you for having me here again today.
0: Hi, Renee, I'm glad to be here again.
1: Glad to have you guys. Um, You'll hear more from them later on in the podcast. Today's guest is Professor John Unruh, an Associate Professor of Geography at McGill University. Having earned a PhD in Geography at the University of Arizona, he is now a partner of the IOWC's Appraising Risk Project and the Director of the Canadian Field Studies in Africa Programme which is centered at McGill. His core research interests are war-affected land rights regimes, the peace process and recovery from armed conflict, and the intersection between land rights and environmental change. He has published numerous peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters, as well as two co-edited volumes, and has translated his work into a policy environment as a partner with the United Nations Environmental Program, or UNET. His regional expertise in the Indian Ocean world ranges across the Northeast of Africa, the Middle East, South Central Asia, and Southeast Asia. We are very honored that he has joined us to discuss his work today. Professor Anru, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: We're delighted to have you. Um, So Professor Anru, in advance of this recording, um, you sent us four publications, um, all of which cover different regions in the contemporary Indian Ocean world. And for our listeners, by the way, uh, the links to these articles are in the description of this podcast um, and much of the discussion later in this podcast recording will focus on these publications. Uh, So check them out. Um, One of these publications deals with Darfur, another with Yemen, another with Syria, and the last with Afghanistan. I also know that your wider work uh, that you have experience working within the Indian Ocean World regions includes Ethiopia, Mozambique, Sri Lanka, and East Timor, uh, not to mention several regions outside of the Indian Ocean World, such as Peru and Colombia. So I was just wondering if you could give us um, a bit of your research in this context, context. Uh, what do you do in relation to these diverse regions? How do you gain enough expertise to contribute to understandings of these regions and policies therein?
3: Uh, uh, thank you very much. Um uh, well in terms of uh sort of an aggregate look at at all of the regions, um my primary methodology is uh is field work. Um, and so um, I don't quite spend, you know, like an anthropologist would do, years and years in a village. But but I do uh, focus on specific problems and go to the field and spend usually a couple of months or so um, uh, working on that uh, on that problem. Uh, one thing I do focus on, of course, is um, uh, war affected uh, recovery, primarily in terms of uh, of land rights because land rights and armed conflict, uh, both are a a spatial uh, encounter. Uh, They affect each other incredibly. Um, uh, Wars are often about land, and uh, in reverse, armed conflict, of course, completely reworks uh, the relationships between people uh, about land. Uh, usually, I use as uh, the motor for, um, uh, for this work, this work on, on war-affected land rights, uh, connections to uh, a United Nations line agency uh, that is interested in um, uh, recovery of land and property rights in a war-affected country. And so uh, I joined the UN uh, as part of a, of a group to research and then make recommendations in terms of policy and practice as to how to put uh, back together again a land and property rights system after, uh, after armed conflict. Uh, so in that regard, that's a little different than, say, an academically funded uh, piece of research. Uh, this is very, uh, very specific. Um, it does, of course, come with its own... Uh, its own funding it's it's not in terms of money but it's in in terms of on-kind uh, in-kind rather uh, logistics and and access to the different um, belligerent groups and 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 uh, and combatant actors in a in a landscape after a conflict in order to uh, access the different groups and and see what their positions are with regard to land rights and how to put that back together again after war. I then take that um, research that I do. Uh, my first step is then to put it into a, a policy uh, practice and a project format for the United Nations. Um, uh, sometimes I help them implement that, but usually always I then take that material and turn it into a, a, an academic publication or, or two or three, uh, depending on uh, how, how relevant that uh, that can be. Um, And so that's, uh, of course, then merges with um, an effort like uh, the grants that the IOWC gets um, into a a good bit of synergy uh, back and forth in terms of of basically focusing my research on uh, problems and engaging in uh, in field work. Um, As you can imagine, often uh, after a conflict, Um, uh, there are best practices that that have emerged and so the United Nations and other other international donors um, like this idea of best practice. In other words, what is a practice that has emerged elsewhere that looks good or that has been tried in a number of places and it always rises to the top in terms of a workable solution. Um, So when you go into a new place, for example, that I've never been to before, basically what they want me to do is to talk about these best practices that work well in other places. Um, And so for example, in East Timor and Sri Lanka, uh, the first time I I went there, it was to talk about Ethiopia and Mozambique and and Yemen, et cetera, uh, other places where certain constructs of post-war land and property rights recovery have worked and and then to try to tailor them into the Sri Lankan or East Timorese uh, reality. Um, And then I I work hand in hand with um, uh, local officials and uh, the different sides in the conflict to try to implement a United Nations uh, kind of sponsored idea. I'll just wrap up and and, and say that the package then that the UN likes to um, implement in a war-affected Uh, country is one of uh, mass claims. So in a conflict, of course, there are hundreds of thousands, at times millions of people that are dislocated. They become refugees or internally dislocated persons, IDPs, and then after war, they all come flooding back. Um, That flood then overwhelms uh, any local domestic court system, set of laws, uh, government ability to reintegrate all those people, complicated by the reality that the government was usually one of the belligerents in the conflict and so trust is low in uh, returning uh, people to their land and property to have government actually conduct an exercise to try to get people back on their lands. There's all sorts of suspicions as to the prospect of ethnic cleansing and demographic change, uh, etc. So you need to a trusted third party, that's usually the, the United Nations, that comes in and conducts a very large scale, what's called a mass claims, housing, land and property restitution program. These are quite large, quite cumbersome. They take a lot of time and, um, and engage in a lot of money, require a lot of money, but they try to, in a very large volume sort of way, um, conduct themselves with hundreds of thousands, often millions of individual claims, and and move through that quickly to get people back onto their uh, part of their their land of property. So, in a nutshell, that's kind of it. Hopefully, that wasn't too long-winded.
1: No, I think that was great length and very interesting to hear about for sure. Um, so, thank you for saying that, Professor Andrew. Um, I will now turn over questioning to Archisman and uh, Philip.
0: Um, thank you, Rani, and thank you, Professor Andrew. This is Archishman. I want to start by discussing your article, "Weaponization of the Land and Property Rights System in the Syrian Civil War: Facilitating Restitution." As you argue, the Syrian housing, land, and property rights system, or the HLP, has been turned into an effective weapon by the government to identify and displace dissenters of the regime. Uh, In this regard, you point out that uh, administrative offices which house LPG HLP records are destroyed and that that worsens the problem. However, you do point out that the process of destruction itself, use of social media by refugees and displaced people, and even the settling of new population on acquired land also produce a trail of evidence that can be read backwards to settle HLP claims. You also point out that the Syrian civil code and customary tenures in alliance with the aforementioned evidence can play a substantial role in settling HLP claims if and when displaced people return to Syria. Uh, My question is, could you elaborate on how such a methodology would, in a hypothetical or actual case of litigation, work through a web of claims and counterclaims and try to arrive at a solution?
3: Sure. Um, so uh, why don't we stick with the sort of actual cases and, and speak a little bit from uh, from history. Um, so, as I noted above, the, the UN has basically a, a package of, of activities that it takes into uh, war-affected countries in order to uh, very quickly produce Solutions and, and a peace dividend, so that um, uh, people can become invested in uh, in a different way of, of conducting their uh, their lives. So, in terms of, of uh, housing, land, and property claims, and the in the Syrian case, the millions of people about 12.9 million people that will return from. Uh, outside the country and from, and from dislocation inside the, the, the country. Uh, that package is, is, what, is something that's called uh, a transitional justice, a uh, form of mass claims, uh, housing, land, and property rights restitution. Transitional justice is a robust field of, of research and, and law. It is uh, used in a policy and practice way by the UN and and others to move forward very, very quickly in an approach that seeks to reattach people to their property in a variety of ways. Uh, So as you can imagine, um, it's pretty straightforward. If someone is dislocated from a house, they can return to that house, they have a title, no one else claims it, and, and that's very straightforward. It gets a little difficult if people never had uh, documents in the first place, if it was lineage or tribal or religious held land, indigenous held land, etc., cetera, um, or if they lost those documents or if documents were purposefully altered during the conflict, which is, which is very common, um, then what you need is a, a different strategy. And this is, this is the transitional justice uh, strategy. So basically, this is a combination of local domestic law and international law. Uh, that seeks to bring together a tailor-made set of laws uh, for the situation at hand. So, uh, for example, you really can't have a set of laws that focuses on all the people returning needing to have a document before they get their land back when almost no people have documents. When they come back and nobody has a document, you have to come up with a new set of laws and practices that attends to that reality. Uh, if you don't, of course, then people won't engage the restitution program, and they we will seek alternatives and and often those alternatives are very destabilizing and and Iraq and Afghanistan are, are very good examples of uh of that so this transitional justice approach it's it's very fluid it's uh been accused of being a little ad hoc uh it's somewhere between um uh use what's worked well elsewhere pick and choose in a, uh, a cherry picking kind of way, what works in domestic law and make it up as you go. Um, and so it's a little rough around the edges. It is intended for uh, dealing with the social injustice of enormous dislocations of uh, of people in a very, very uh, quick way. So what happens when enormous numbers of people come back, uh, you don't actually get to um, uh, sort of look at or engage with or analyze each and every claim, that would take decades. What you do is you categorize claims, uh, like claims into categories of, of people or types, and then that category receives a legal decision. It's compensation, it's your land back, it's a, a variety of other what are called uh, uh, remedies. In the Syrian war, what, what's happened is that there have been a, a, this purposeful dislocation uh, a purposeful attempt at demographic change, particularly in, in uh, recovery. But what's interesting is that all of these set methods for dealing with very large numbers of, of claims um, are easily translatable into the Syrian reality, which is something new that we're seeing because uh, the Syrian dislocates are very, very technology literate. Um, They are able to check on their housing land and property from in exile. They have all sorts of things on their, their phones. They are very aware of the material on their phones and their social media activities and how that's relevant to creating evidence for a claim. So all of the informal ways of interaction with one's property, the fact that you have what legally is called intimate knowledge, about your land and property. You know that land and property so much more intimately than someone else trying to come and fraudulently claim it that you would be able to present that intimate knowledge and, and win your claim. Well, that intimate knowledge is a legal concept. It's brought into transitional justice and, and used. Customary indigenous uh, knowledge as well about land and property and, and history is also brought into Uh, transitional justice. Uh, Normal uh, sort of Western notions of what's not allowed as evidence for a claim, such as hearsay, meaning you're going to introduce something that you heard someone else say, uh, usually it's not allowed. Um, This has changed, though, because this is oral history. Oral history about one's land and property is often the only thing people have. And so usually the evidence rules are changed to tailor to what people do have to present as a, as a way to claim, uh, claim lands. And so uh, in, in the Syrian case, the act, if you will, of dislocating people and the act of trying to put other people on their lands, the act of displacement, the act of destruction uh, are all captured now by uh, what's been called the most heavily socially mediated civil war in history. Everything from satellite imagery to, uh, to drones, to selfies, to social media, to um, uh, statements, et cetera, are all now much more accessible and uh, so now we have the opportunity of, of taking these acts of displacement, these acts of expropriation and confiscation, and turning those, the material that that creates, and using those for, uh, for housing, land, and property claims. That's have that's such potential that um, uh, the a couple of European uh, funders have uh, funded an activity that is now widely known, whereby um, when a city fell to the opposition during the war, groups would go in and gather up all sorts of papers that uh, were in the different ministries, the different uh, field offices, et cetera, and took them out of the country to have them be translated. And these revealed the inner workings of dislocation and uh, and legal confiscation, et cetera. And the idea here is that these are now going to be used for uh, future human rights uh, litigation and, and issues uh, against the Syrian state um, uh, in in the future. So so it's uh, a bit messy. Um, these are all sort of uh, different pieces of evidence that are assembled and that uh, corroborate each other and that are used for uh, for claims as a as a methodology. Uh, could go on, but I'll I'll wrap it up there.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Professor Andrew. Uh, if I would just were to build uh, build on that. Two points intrigued me as I read your article, a volatile interaction between peace building priorities, road road infrastructure reconstruction and land rights in Afghanistan. I think these are common to Syria as well. Uh, For example, uh, firstly, the local population, especially returning refugees, distrust legal processes, particularly due to corrupt bureaucracy. And eventually, you argue this leads them to back non-state actors like the Taliban and other warlords. Even in Syria, you do point out that often returning refugees distrust the government's legal structure when it comes to settling HLP claims. And uh, just another point, Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, you point out that uh, provision of social uh, social justice, especially swift justice by insurgent groups like the Taliban, often helps them win trust among locals. In Syria, uh, a different yet similar mechanism is at work. For example, you point out that opposition groups and the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant allow soldiers to settle in accommodations that have been vacated by displaced people. In both cases, uh, I find that the objective is to create a viable alternative model of state or governance for the population. So, how do you think public policymakers can address this crucial issue of establishing trust in war-torn and war-affected countries?
3: Uh, thank you. That's a critical uh, a question. Uh, complicated, as you as you just uh, just described. Um, as you noted, the uh, often insurgent groups um, go out of their way to provide what's called a social service, providing effort to local populations. Uh, Western militaries like to call that winning hearts and minds. Um, And so you can have a situation in Syria or or Afghanistan where they they try to get the local population on their side. Fairly easily done when the state is corrupt, is not able to provide services, and is seen as uh, mistreating the, the local population. Uh, so you had situations where uh, ISIL uh, went out of their way in a land and property uh, sense to, uh, to uh, take back lands that have been confiscated by, uh, by members of the elite in, um, in Syria and in, in Iraq and, and return those to their rightful owners very violently, of course. Uh, this wins the uh, hearts and minds, if you will, of, of not just the people that, uh, that got their land back, but everybody around them. And, and, and the, the uh, insurgent groups know this. Uh, today, in fact, you have a number of insurgent groups going out of their way to provide for relief and including health services in COVID-affected areas of countries that are affected by, uh, by, by conflict. Uh, Colombia is, is one of, one of these. Uh, there's a number of these in Africa. Um, and as you can imagine, the local government is embarrassed by its inability to provide this, this health uh, uh, support. And th- this of course is being taken advantage of by, uh, by insurgent groups. So there is this tug of war for trust um, among local populations between the insurgent groups and between, uh, between uh, the state. And so frequently you can, you can have, for example, schools and health clinics and, and courts uh, try to be promoted by the state and then these things being attacked by the insurgent groups who uh, do not want people to access those and instead want the people to access the insurgent groups social service providing uh, efforts of, of courts and, and education and, and, uh, and health clinics as well. So trust is a pretty critical uh, issue Fast forward to the end of the war, it becomes paramount because the government usually always backed one side uh, in the war, uh, regardless of who wins. And so how to create trust in government, uh, trying to do good things in terms of recovery among a local population when sympathies can be against the government. Often that requires a, a third party. Uh, in terms of establishing that trust. This is a, an outside objective party. Uh, usually it can be someone in uh, the United Nations. It can be a United Nations institution. It can be an elder statesman from a different country. And, and Africa is good at, at producing a Kofi Annan uh, or a Nelson Mandela that is seen broadly as being uh, this elder statesman, this peacemaking actor that can be brought to bear on a situation and establish and lead institutions for trust building. Um, And of course, as you can imagine, uh, uh, that can give sort of a head start on on the building of trust. That doesn't necessarily quickly establish trust in government. That takes time. Uh, Often what can happen is that uh, you have a belligerent group become a political party. So uh, so this is a common sort of uh, scenario for the UN. Uh, so let's say, take Mozambique, where you had Frelimo, the government, Renamo, the insurgency, coming together at the end of the war and uh, the international community, changing Renamo from an insurgent group into a political party um, and the warlords becoming members of parliament, et cetera. And, and you, you try to sort of manage that idea. Uh, uh Colombia, of course, is another case where the FARC guerrilla group for 50 years engaged in armed combat against the government is now a political party. This can be good and bad. It, it's it's definitely a way forward. It's uh politics is war by other means, but you also have a lot of difficulty where uh people who suffered under uh the FARC uh, armed conflict, having a great deal of difficulty thinking about them as the political party when they would like to have everybody be thrown in jail that belonged to the to FARC. The so at the early years, this is, this is a rocky road in terms of establishing trust. Uh, it takes um, a great deal of attention. It takes the UN being in place, doing what's called peace building over many years, sometimes a couple of decades, uh, from outside, you can say, well, this this peace-building UN effort has been in this country or that country for a long period of time. We're wasting our money. They should be gone. Uh, uh, and so that, that reveals a, a lack of comprehension about what it takes to really build trust and to have a third party that's trusted be present, shepherding this sort of reconstruction of, of government and belligerence into political parties in order to to move forward so that's a large scale long term very clumsy, very rough justice approach to establishing uh, trust but you're talking about a fairly big picture solution involving millions of people that you want to go from one day to the next uh, solving their problems in a way that is other than armed uh, armed combat uh, so that that's one approach to establishing trust in in uh, in war countries
0: thank you so much for those answers professor andrew and i would leave the questioning now to philip uh, thanks a thank you uh john for detailing your research
2: and for answering those questions um i've got a couple of questions um one based on your article referring to yemen post arab spring and one referring to um your um article on darfur um i'm gonna although they're focused well, the, 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 the questions are inspired by those articles, I'm going to try and keep the questions quite broad. Um, start with the, with the, the questioning um, from the article from Yemen. In this article, you made recommendations for how the government's land restitution program should reform itself once it recommenced. At the time of writing in 2016, uh, it was suspended. Um, I can only assume, um, given the ongoing conflict, that it remains suspended. Thus, um, so I wonder: Have the last four years changed any of your conclusions or recommendations? Or more broadly, uh, in what ways is your scholarship adaptable to what are often clearly very fluid situations? Like, will you be updating this article in any way uh, moving forward? Or do you feel the need, or do, do you think you will need to? Um, alternatively, and if the program is not suspended, how has the Land Commission worked under the current circumstances?
3: Yes, thank you. Um, it is suspended in uh, in um, in uh, in Yemen, um, and um, the the current uh, approach there, unfortunately, has has actually fallen quite apart. Um, that approach um, uh, defaulted to a uh, the, the conventional way of of engaging land and property restitution, which is uh, that if you have a claim. Uh, you travel to the, uh, the, the capital, which is Aden, uh, in the south of, of the country. You stand in long lines, often for days. Um, and when you get to the front of the line, you're given a form that you then fill out. Uh, you submit that form that you filled out by hand, together with your documented evidence. That then goes to a, a large pile that has to be then entered into a, a database. That's the process that was underway when the, the Houthi incursion started in in the south. And so, all of that physically based material, the forms, people's uh, actual um, uh, evidence, and in this case, this included very old land titles, uh, sometimes written on parchment, sometimes written on sheepskin, uh, originals that go back to the, uh, the era, era of sultans, etc. Uh, we're all destroyed. Um, And and so in that regard, that sort of uh, heightens the recommendation of of needing to go more online. Uh, Just the, the simple act of coming and standing in line excludes women. Right. So in, 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 in Yemen, women, head of households were unable to go and, and stand in line and, and make a claim. Um, it, ex, it excluded um, uh, sort of minorities. Everybody can see who's in line. Um, and so it was really fraught with a lot of difficulty, um, even before uh, it, it kind of fell apart and all the different forms and, and whatnot were were uh, were. Uh, sort of blown to the wind in the, in the conflict that actually entered into uh, into uh, Aden parts of of that of the the forms and the claims had been entered into the um, into the, uh, the the database and and one hopes that 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 database in different pieces is still stored uh, still stored uh, somewhere. This, which gets us to your question of fluidity. Uh, situations that are very, very fluid. Um, one could argue have uh, a separate set of, of um, uh, tools. Uh, so it is, it is one situation to be after a war where the United Nations blue helmets are in place. They have prevailed militarily and there is more or less calm. Uh, that's one situation to, to work in. Uh, in that case, the United Nations is keeping the peace. They're engaging in disarmament. Um, and so you can move forward with uh, ideas of claim. In Yemen or in Darfur, where you're not there yet, is very, very fluid. But what's interesting is that there's still tools. And Darfur is a good example of, of that. Uh, Darfur, like, like all conflicts, if you look at the different belligerent groups, they all have their what are called narratives of grievance. Uh, It is a narrative. It is a story that a belligerent group tells itself about why they're fighting, whose fault it is, how they have been wronged in history, and why they deserve to gain what they gain and pursue what they pursue in in armed conflict. Uh, So if you take the case of of Darfur and you look at the group uh, that's called the Janjaweed, And their constituency. So uh, the Janjawees are the pointy end of a large constituency that is comprised of nomadic pastoralists. Um, And so that narrative of grievance for that entire group has it that they were cheated. Uh, out of land over a great deal of time, starting from the Sultanate period, going to the colonial period and now in the independence period. and so this this uh, this sort of cheating of of their land uh, allows them to say that, that they now deserve what what they can they can take. Uh, the previous government under Bashir in in Darf- Darf- in Sudan used that that narrative of grievance mm-hmm. to basically say, uh, you can go and keep lands that you conquer, that you take away, that you empty of the farmers uh, that, of course, um, supported the, the initial insurgency in, in Darfur. That then led to uh, what we know to be the, the Darfur uh, conflict. So that narrative of grievance is a tool uh, that is used by the different belligerent sides in a conflict. And what's interesting is that uh, such a narrative can be tinkered with. From the outside, it can also be used as a tool by something like the United Nations. So, I was in Darfur when uh, the International Criminal Court uh, made it known that President Bashir was indicted. Uh, that created its own narrative, and so that uh, pretty quickly um, led to a sea change among the uh, the belligerent groups, primarily the uh, Janjaweed and and the other militias around it. Um, that made them think twice about what they were doing. Because if their primary backer, Bashir at that time, was to be indicted, would they be next? Or would they also be in trouble? Would they in some way not have the advantageous positions that they had? So you saw very quickly their narrative change about how they were conducting the conflict. It became clear to them that they would not be able to take and keep the land that they that they confiscated from, from farmers. It made them start to second guess and it actually opened up opportunities for, uh, for restitution and for and for peace building. So uh, I would argue that, that that idea of playing around with narratives and playing around with narratives of grievance and the narratives that the different belligerent groups use as a way to uh, justify their actions in armed conflict, uh, can be altered, can be played with from the outside by by the international community, and that uh, further research needs to be done about how to do that and the the effects on the ground. So that gets that some uh, a different tool for very fluid situations. If we if we look back to the um, the Bosnian Bosnian conflict in the Balkans, this was the first sort of really uh, vivid case of uh, large-scale ethnic cleansing. Um, That idea of of deserving the land that you take over, that you clean from the inhabitants was very much a narrative. Um, uh, The international community uh, sort of inadvertently introduced a counter narrative uh, that resulted in those that took land coming to a the conclusion they know that they're on someone else's land and they know that that's unjust and that they know that there's going to be a coming wave of activities that will seek to uh, take that land away from them. Uh, so if you introduce even something as small as doubt into uh, this notion, this process of ethnic cleansing that those who clean will not be able to keep the land and property that they that they gain, that doubt Allows for opportunities to 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 uh, uh, to to be pursued, so you would like to enlarge in that doubt you would like to work with that so so again that 's a a narrative that you can you can pursue so these things are very broad scale they are very kind of uh, rough around the edges and they're, they're very um, uh, sort of clumsy, but they are for very fluid large scale uh, situations so uh, that there is there are examples out there where where these uh, tools can be used in fluid situations and and um, one would like to see greater research into how to refine such tools for for those fluid situations uh,
2: Thank you, John, for that answer and thank you for drawing um, your attention to the narratives of grievance indeed you i remember, I was going to ask you um, question about that, uh, about elaborating the potential strategies for ensuring land rights contribute to peace rather than war, and your discussing of doubt uh, and the need for further research actually uh, answers those questions uh, already. Um, therefore, I think uh, I'll pass over to Renee to wrap up from here.
1: Yeah, so thank you so much, Professor Anru, for all of that really interesting and eye-opening information um, on transitional justice and the way that it's applied in these different states and, um, sorry, in these different nations throughout the Indian Ocean world. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today, for detailing your research and for answering all of our questions so effectively and uh, in so much detail. Thank you to Archisman and Philip for asking those questions. And thank you to you, the listeners for downloading. Uh, Once again, my name is Renee Manderville and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
0: The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.